before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. Who, um, who seem to be pushed more towards like investments that have you know fatter tails and wider distribution skews, and you know just speculating that like there may be a business reason behind this, right? Because like if you're kind of like a up and coming fund manager, and you're doing the whole concentrated compounder thing, there's sort of this tacit assumption that your client has that you know you're gonna be able to generate hopefully like twenty percent plus IRRs. Of course, that's not like ever explicitly stated, but what you're probably telling your clients is that, you know, when we pick stocks, that's, that's kind of the return hurdle. And so to the, to the extent that it's true, just made me think like, okay, if you had two stocks, you had like you know, WD40, which is a fine company, but it's sort of a GDP plus grower without it's boring. Um, a whole lot of growth prospects trading at like a bond, basically like 55 times earnings versus like Shopify at 60 times revenue. You know, like the 90% confidence interval that, that you can put on the return outcomes will vary widely depending on for, for maybe Shopify and less so for um, WD-40. But even if you believed that like WD-40 was like kind of a better, might produce a, a higher expected return with less risk, you might still go for Shopify anyway because you at least, because there's just no... There's just no way in hell you're going to earn like 25% returns buying WD-40 at 55 times earnings, whereas yeah. you might at least have a chance if you were to buy Shopify at 60 times revenue. Does that make sense? So, well, well, so I guess before you get onto that, like I think I think what you're you're basically saying is like in order to in order to differentiate yourself from like the established shops and like build a business, a lot of it's going to be uh, like return driven rather than like process driven. And so like you need to put up big numbers early on to get that capital to, to be interested in you. And so it's kind of like swinging for the fences with, with these companies that have like maybe like really big tail risk, but like the, the super big upside. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, so if you have like a return hurdle, that's like 25% or whatever, you're not going to buy WD-40 even if you can think, even if you think you can earn, I don't know, like low teens on that. And even if that low teens is higher than the expected return you might earn on Shopify, if you did like a real open-ended analysis. I don't know. I'm just kind of like, again, just speculating here. I, I haven't actually done like the, the deep valuation work or anything like that. But I'm just saying like, like Shopify, it's one that, you know, one, it's easier to pitch because you can always say, well, you know, Shopify, it's got 120 billion GMV. There's maybe trillions of retail dollars that can eventually flow through its platform. But also just kind of like less cynically, it's easier to tell yourself that story as well. well there's, a lot, there's a lot of like um, variables that you can't necessarily like, there's no right answer right now. There's so no right answer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It can so go it's either like, way. And, it can go yeah. either way. It, you may not earn... 25% returns on Shopify, but you could, and who are they to tell you that you can't? <laughs> and then also when you're writing about that in your letter, you, you can, you can actually, you can lay out like a credible case and be like, this is a real possibility. Um, whereas you can't let, like really lay out, lay out that case for, for WD40, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And so I think maybe that's just a natural outcome of just all the classic compounder type stories being, um, 
priced at these elevated multiples that you're sort of being pushed into more of these, um, you know, fat tail investment stories. Yeah. Um, Ch but, chasing return. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I, I like a growth story as much as anybody and most of the stuff that I write about on the blog, but you know, I, I just feel like one of the things I find more these days is investors offering platitudes like, you know, I'd rather be directionally right than precisely wrong when they're asked about valuation. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. And, you know, valuation maybe doesn't matter when you're kind of like at the seed stage or, or series A or whatever. But, you know, as you get to higher and higher valuations, um, it's not good enough just to be directionally right. You do have to be precise right? Like your, your estimates have to be, your, your rosy estimates have to play out the way you think. There's not like a huge margin for error as you get to higher and higher valuations to make, to, to like state the obvious here. Right. 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 But I guess, yeah, taking that aside, I mean, I think what you're, what you're basically saying is there, there's a lot of like behavioral reasons to own Shopify in that it gives you that, um, that potential to kind of hit, hit the ball of the park and get convex asset flows, if you will, if you do that, yeah. um, it gives you the ability to, to write out, you know, a credible upside case in your letter so you can sound forward looking. Um, yes. and then also I think, I mean, that's not on a professional front, but also I'm sure you've got like a lot of retail investors out there who, you know, just given like, you know, low interest rates, free money right now, prevalence of Robin hood. I mean, I think all of that's just like playing into mm -hmm. some of these growth, growth stories as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and I guess the other thing that you're hearing a lot of is, um, you know, once you, like, I don't know if you read that um, essay, The Art of Not Selling. By yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think like the basic point of that essay was, you know, once you find an excellent business, there are so few excellent businesses in the world that once you get one, you just hang on to them no matter what. And there's just, you know, other versions of this have been, have become popular, like, you know, don't sell your w winners or whatever. And, you know, obviously some of this is just a function of this long bull market. I mean, I wonder how many people would be saying this if we were in a deep funk. And so like part of this, like I'm a little bit concerned that people are drawing lessons from recent outcomes rather than from first principles. Yeah. But, but then again, I think like there's, there's sort of like an epistemological truth to this. And then there's like an instrumental truth. So, so if Amazon were to like triple within over the next month on like no news then you know you wouldn't say well you know hang on tight like don't sell your winners like that surely doesn't make sense right or if or you know before you buy a stock you probably have some idea of the return that you can make on it right and so it doesn't really make sense to say well after i buy it i just have no idea and, and so i should just you know continue hanging on no matter how how high the price a lot of this kind of fails on first principles but but then again you know like the notion of never selling could be useful for for a few reasons, you know, like maybe you're wired to be risk averse. And so keeping that sort of never sell mantra in mind sort of offsets the bias that you have of selling too soon. And, you know, you might also believe that the market systemically undervalues, you know, growth stories. And, and so, you know, while, of course, you're going to lose every now and then by hanging on to companies that turn out to be not so great. In the aggregate, this may sort of work out. A variation on that point is, 
you say, look, the market systemically underprices excellent companies and intrinsic value is this nebulous thing anyway. So no need to do any forward looking math. While I don't know what the intrinsic value is, by virtue of this being an excellent company, the chances are very good that the market is not appropriately pricing just how excellent this company is and the market will continue to underprice this company for as long as it remains excellent, if that I mean, makes sense. I think also, I mean, the obvious one, and so yeah, there's behavioral factors. I'm, I mean, I, to throw out another one, I guess you could also say like, it could lead to like market timing, right? Where you're like, oh, the market's kind of frothy, everything's up a lot. And then, yeah. But um, I mean, from a quantitative perspective, I mean, there's always also like the tax implications. And so, mm. I mean, I think the way that you and I both look at stocks is, you know, what we, you know, if you have a long-term uh, investment horizon and you can kind of model out um, like in different scenarios, what you think, you know, expected return is on that investment. And if the stock all, all of a sudden triples on you, then obviously your expected return should fall. And, you know, theoretically you should sell it if it's, you know, below your hurdle rate. But that being said, you know, you're going to experience, you know, you know, taxes at that point. And so yeah. let's say if you're selling an investment that's going to give you like a 7% return to buy someone, to buy one that's going to give you a 10% return, but you're going to pay, I don't know, 20% in taxes. I mean, there's, there's a certain time horizon that at which point that makes sense. And, and there's a certain horizon where it doesn't make sense. And so yeah. sometimes, sometimes I think it's actually okay to be like, yeah, our portfolio is going to underperform in the near term, just because of what's happened, what we've, what we've kind of pulled forward already. Hey, I was going to go back to one other thing. Um, just on the, uh, you know, we were talking before about like, like buying growth, um, or like, you know, the, the high multiple stocks versus some more like boring businesses. Um, and you mentioned like, um, how a lot of funds also pitch themselves as like, you know, concentrated portfolios. And I think a lot of that there's like, definitely a marketing side of that. And it also like a romantic side of it where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you watch, you watch the guys in the big short who are super, are super long or sorry, um, have, are super concentrated and just kind of lay it all out on the line on, on a few positions. And there's like a romantic angle to that, but there's also like, and, and, and it can also lead to like hu- periods of huge upside. You know, people can put up huge numbers, but if you're wrong, you could have, I mean, it could be, it could be disastrous for the fund. And so I think there's like maybe like a less sexy um, model where it's like, you know, remaining diversified. And it's not saying that you don't have conviction. It's just, you know, managing the portfolio in a more conservative manner. Yeah, I think that's also a good point is that I think that there's, you know, maybe an element of survivorship bias to a lot of this, a lot of the celebration of like concentrated portfolios because, you know, the funds who go concentrate and blow up, like those are not the guys who are bragging on Twitter or writing letters, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, um, or, or, or like if you look at the large successful hedge funds now that are all concentrated, I mean, like those are the survivors, yes, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and so people just pull away the lesson of, well, you need to stay concentrated, but they don't see the cemetery of, of, uh, of losers from that, of that strategy. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, just to be clear, there's also a camp of, investors who are just like constantly shaking their fist at all things cloud and tech and confident <laughs> that like everyone's crazy and you know they're waiting for multiples to slam down to historical levels before they get in they're blaming the fed whatever okay boomer and i just <laughs> and it's just like yeah i mean there are certainly pockets of bubbles out there uh, probably more than there were you know 2 years ago but also 
it's just, you know, value chains have just reconfigured themselves in, in profound ways. And surplus is rightfully accruing to software and tech generally in ways that it hasn't in the past. And like, you need to at least acknowledge that and keep an open mind. If you're still blaming the Fed for your underperformance, I just like, I just have no tolerance for that. I mean, you know, you, you, you might not say that explicitly, but if you're kind of a stock picker and in your letters, you're devoting like 80% of the time talking about how the Fed's balance sheet has blown up, <laughs> you're kind of shifting the risk over, you're, you're kind of shifting the, the, uh, the blame a little bit. At least that's what it re reads like to me. Or, talk, so or talking about like our policy approach to COVID, for instance. Yeah. And so <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about there. Uh, Sam. <laughs> but, but yeah, and it's like, look, of course, valuation is a valid concern. But I think like what irks me is when, when I don't know, like investors almost see themselves as like defenders of the faith in a sense, right? Like they take almost this dogmatic attitude. I mean, um, our job, your job as a professional investor is to... I mean, it's just to put up attractive risk adjusted returns, right? Like that's like the, the yeah. goal, right? And it's not to comment on what the Fed should be doing or what policymakers should be doing. I mean, that's, you can have your opinions, but but our job is to to analyze the environment and adjust accordingly, right? And so yeah, you can't really complain as much about the cards that you were dealt. You just have to like handle them appropriately, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, we all face the same macro and you know monetary policy conditions it's like it's, they're not just targeting you right um and you have the and you have the ability i mean you have the ability to sell your stocks and buy something different if if you believe that's the right like you know investment choice yeah exactly and i think what you just said brings up um another point i guess um it's like we're you know we're, we're all trying to find the risk best risk adjusted return returns and that's true but i wonder if like we're we're all dogmatic, maybe to a certain degree, just to uh, play devil's advocate on my prior point. Be being because, like, I, I guess, I guess what I'm thinking is like, you know, like air cap below book value and Shopify at 60 times revenue. It may be like if you kept an open mind and like really did the math that like the return, the returns might be the same on each of those. But you'll almost like never find a fund manager that owns, who owns Shopify, also owning like air cap, right? Um, and I, I just think like if if the sole goal here as a generalist were to buy the best risk adjusted returns, you would find portfolios that were a lot more diverse in terms of like industry than you actually find. But yeah, for whatever hard, reason, though. You... I mean, I mean, like we've all got our skill sets and, you know, when you're looking at one stock, you look at their competitors and whatnot. And so there's kind of um, like synergies there. It's hard to, I guess, be a jack yeah. of all trades. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, it's not necessarily that you're, you're trying to find the best risk adjusted returns. It's maybe more like, look, we all, we're all wired a certain way. We all have a, like our own different interests. And then we just try to find the best risk adjusted returns within those constraints. It's also hard though. Cause I mean, I feel like if you've got, um, if you're like a traditional value manager and you're just, you know, buying companies that are, have cheap multiples and that obviously hasn't worked out for you, um, in the, in the past few years, um, I mean, at a certain point though, like if you were just to like, let's say you know, you, you were to just, uh, give up and, and, and go for the growthy names. I mean, on one hand you could be like, oh, he's adjusting to the environment. But on the other hand, it's like, maybe there's a lack of conviction and you're just, you're changing your thesis just based on how those stocks have performed. And mm -hmm. so, I don't know, I guess you just have to always be, it's hard to, it's, you have to, you have to make your decisions in a vacuum 
um, away from like what everyone else is doing and, and also in a vacuum of like how the, how the names have historically performed and just like yeah. think about whether they're, they're good investments and whether if, if you think in like five years, you know, like they'll be worth more than kind of where they're at today. And, you know, also like what's, I mean, a lot of what I do is also catalyst driven. So it's like, there are companies that stay cheap forever. So it's like, is there something that could actually push that in the right direction? Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that there are business challenges to this, right? Because, um, you know, imagine that you're a traditional value manager that, um, you know, started in the early 2000s um, and you did really well for for some time. And all the clients that you have invested in you because that's who they think you are. You may know that you need to kind of like change your style and that the business environment has changed in, in certain ways, but you may feel constrained by the, the fact that this yep. is not what your investor signed up for. So you can't make that style shift anyway. And so, um, so I don't know a lot of it, I, I guess a lot of it is just, you know, you want investors who aren't investing in you because of your investment style, but more because of like who you are. Right. Yeah. It's a great, I mean, it's a great point. Like if you're selling a product and if, yeah, I mean, if you have a product and you don't believe in it anymore, I mean, maybe the right thing to do is just to just tell your investors that you're going to change your strategy because like, that's what you believe in. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's sort of like, what's the product? Are you the product or is it? Yeah. That's a great you know, point. It's really, <laughs> no, it's it a really style? good point. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah. um, so today we were going to talk about, um, do you want to move on to? Yeah. 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 Um, old man stocks. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I mean, we, well, we've both been talking about basically looking at companies that could, that have like, you know, good return outlooks, but aren't, maybe like front and center of most people today, just because they're not as tech oriented. Yeah. And, um, you know, one name I've been doing work on recently is, is Ferguson's. So mm-hmm. I guess, why don't we just give a, an intro and then we can just kind of, did you have a chance yeah. to look at it also? A little, I read their annual report, but that's about it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so basically Ferguson's is a UK listed plumbing and piping distributor. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is, even though they're listed in the UK, like 90% of their business is in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the business breaks down like 50% resi and then 35% commercial and then 15% industrial and civil. And it's mostly, it's mostly all in, in, in plumbing and, and piping and bathroom fixtures. And then they also have this like HVAC business, which, you know, competes with uh, Watsco distribution business that is. And so, um, the business is kind of, I'd say like a mix between Watsco as, you know, a distributor, um, Mm -hmm. to professional contractors and then also like Home Depot. So they've got in the U S yeah, they've got like 1500 stores in the United States. They've got these showrooms also, you know, they service like retail clientele and small contractors, but then they also do like distribution as well for, you know, commercial grade stuff. There's a couple of things going on with the company. So, you know, the first is they've. Um, over the last 10 years, they've like really simplified the business. They've gone from 45 different business units in 2008 down to 14 now. And then mm-hmm. they're in the process of separating out to merging their, their UK business. So it's going to be after that, they're going to be hundred percent on the U S or North America. And so they will be down to like, I think like nine business u- units in the United States. They've gone from 27 countries down to, down to three. And then once UK is gone, they'll be down to two. And then over that time, they've also reduced they've gone from leverage of like almost three times down to 0.7. 
and they've improved their margins. And what are what were these other? Um, so they went to like forty five to fourteen business units. And so what was uh, all this other stuff that they used to be in? I know that like so they had a, a lot of like uh, different European operations that they've separated out. They've sold off okay. a bunch of different like subscale European businesses, um, mm-hmm. and basically just ex- exited markets where their margins were um, you know were not attractive and. They didn't have this, the size benefits that they that they do in the United States, and yeah. so the whole fo- the whole thing is to just focus on, you know, where they have their strengths, and so that's why they've they, um, you know, they've uh, after the UK is gone, they're going to be 100% North America, and in all the markets that they're in, they're either the number one or two player. It's like the same uh, kind of piping and HVAC stuff, but just fewer countries. Fewer geographies, yeah, yeah I guess, fewer countries to, to get more scale. Right, right. And so, like, if you go through their business, their, their largest business lines. So, let's say like fifty percent is is in residential, and then that breaks down into like Resi Trade and then Resi Showrooms. Yeah. Um, and so, for Resi Trade, they're number two behind Home Depot. For Resi Showrooms, they're number one. I'm kind of surprised, like, that I've never heard of this business because they're actually pretty big. I was reading through the annual report, and I was surprised that yeah, like they have like fifteen hundred branches. Yeah. In the US and yeah, it's a real uh, company. But, yeah. <laughs> I thought this was another um, <laughs> levered shitty small cap sale and special here. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's a real thing. It's a real business. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I mean, they've got like, it's kind of crazy. I was just looking earlier. Um, their net promoter score is like 60. Um, uh-huh. And like Home Depot is like negative five or something. Um, so it seems like they're, the business is actually like um, that their customers really like it. The, the showrooms that they have, is that, um, I, I think I saw it was like um, like 14% of their revenue comes from these showrooms. So is this like like the end customer, the, the homeowner or whatever will come in and check out? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think like for the show, so the showrooms are 14% and then um, the, the trade is 20%. So combined that's like 34%. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've got like 1500, uh, branches and then, you know, 277 showrooms. The showrooms are just in my, in my mind, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think they're just basically larger, larger locations where they have like, um, kind of like examples of like how things are laid out. And so you can, you can browse and, and see what it would look like. Right. It's more of, yeah. Yeah. So it's like when you walk into a home depot, they have sort of these, um, like a section, right. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and that's, yeah, so combined that's 34% of their business. So it is like a very much like retail facing operation, but then they've got, um, you know, 10% of their businesses, HVAC distribution, which is, I know, I know they, I know that you looked at Watsco recently. So these guys are the number three player behind Watsco in the United States. Um, and then they've got like this commercial and civil business, which, um, you know, a large part of that. So the, the civil Part, you know, 17% of their business comes from like waterworks, which is basically for um, water plants, treatment facilities, um, and also like um, different civil civil infrastructure that, um, you know, under roads and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like a, a combination of, yeah, B2B, but also B2C. So their, uh, their direct customers would be like these uh, mom and pop contractors then? I mean, yeah, it could be, well... Well, so it could be just, you know, you or me going in to buy something to, to fix up our bathroom. I mean, if you're more adventurous, but yeah, I think I would right. guess, I would, I would guess that like the majority of their, um, 
for like trade and, and showrooms are like smaller contractors essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And is this like a roll up or. So, um, it, yeah, no, there's definitely, so there, there's an organic story here, but it's also like a bolt on story. So let's see here in the last couple of years, last year they did five, they spent like 500 million, I believe. Oh no, mm -hmm. uh, 650 million on acquisitions, five, uh, 400 the year before. And so from like a revenue perspective, they're basically growing the revenue by like two to 4% a year from acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes sense. I mean, they're just basically expanding to geographies. And also one thing that was interesting is like, they're, they're kind of expanding their product line as well. So, you know, in their annual, they talked about buying like businesses that do cabinets and, uh, or like irrigation stuff, which are, you know, related products, but you know, stuff that they don't currently offer right now. It seems like the way you were sort of not pitching it, but just sort of like describing it as it sounded maybe like a little bit of a turnaround. Story. So is there like some kind of um, like a turnaround aspect to this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's definitely true. Like, I think they overextended themselves. Um, you know, I haven't done like as much background as I, as I should have at this point. But, um, you know, I think they overextend themselves into, into too many geographies. And so mm -hmm. it's really just been like simplifying the story, focusing on, you know, their core markets. And then, um, and then also just like improving margins. So um, yeah. they've been like getting rid of... Um, or I guess focusing on products that have higher margin potential. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that is their, their own brand. So, you know, some of the acquisitions that they've done have been buying brands and then rolling that out to the, to their distribution network. Um, and then also just like creating their own brands and selling that as well. And so you're seeing, you know, margins, gross profit margins have, have increased, you know, call it 20 basis points a year. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing is like right now their their EBITDA margins are still only like, um, I think once once the UK is gone, um, it'll, I think their EBITDA margins will probably be around like 9%. If you compare that to- That's a pretty full margin though for a distributor. Like, you know, like Home Watts Depot. Goes at... Watts goes at eight. Um, yeah. Yeah, Watts goes at eight. Um, to but then there's like, they also compete against this like MSD industrial, which is uh, like an industrial distributor. Yeah. They're at 13 um, and Home Depot's at like 16. So like what, yeah. what would be sort of like a, a more realistic, are they like- I don't know. I mean, I guess like, I mean, I, I think like 50% of their business is more um, like commercial, like, uh, yeah. like retail facing. And so I don't know if you just took a blend of like, you know, I guess Home Depot is pretty high just given, um, you know, their positioning, but like Lowe's yeah. is at 11. So, um, so between 11 and eight, you could say that, yeah, they should be like nine and a half. So maybe there's like another, you know, 50, 50 bips, hundred bips that they can get. I don't know if it's as much of like a turnaround story. I think it's just like a, it's just like a good stable grower. So, you know, organic growth has been, let's see here. Organic growth has been like, like seven and a half percent over the last six years. And if you go in their, in their annual, they, they kind of break out how their markets are performing, you know, the resi commercial civil and industrial markets. And in general, they've been, you know, a few percentage points above those in all categories. Yeah. So they're growing above the market. Um, they're the number one player in like those different sectors, but it's still like super fragmented. So like, let's take like resi showroom, they're the number one player, but you know, they're only at 11, they're only at 11% share of that market. 
And so there's like a, a big like M&A aspect here where they can just continue to do these bolt-ons. And so you get, you know, mid to high single digit organic growth, you throw on some acquisitions mm -hmm. um, and the company spits off a ton of cash. So, you know, it's very capital light. Um, so they can kind of like self-fund. And yeah. um, so that's all like the fundamentals, but then you've got this like kind of interesting, like uh, technical setup. So, you know, right now it's listed in the UK. A lot of the board members are, 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 are British, or at least I think they were as of last year. And then with the, with the most recent board um, annual meeting, they, they like change a lot of their directors. So like the it's like a new chairman, there's like three or four new directors who are all um, US based. Um, and then they're also going to look at their, like where they're listed. So they're either going to do like a dual listing between, uh, the UK and us, or they might just uh, do a primary listing in the U S I think at, at that point, they'll probably have more U S coverage and people look the multiple relative to, you know, Watsco or home Depot. And there's, yeah. there's a, there's a pretty big disconnect there. Oh, is there, how, how's the trade relative to Watsco? Yeah. So let's see. Um, I mean, this is just consensus numbers here, but yeah, like Watsco, if you want to do like EBITDA, Watsco's at 20, 21 for, um, uh -huh. or let's do 20, we'll, we'll do fiscal year 21. So next year, Watsco's at 20, 20 times. Home Depot's at 18. And these guys are at 11. From a fundamental standpoint, I mean, Ferguson's, it sort of reminds me of Watsco um, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously they're a little bit more a lot more diversified and less emphasis on HVAC, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Watsco, I mean, they're, they operate in a really fragmented, large fragmented industry. So it's a $35 billion industry HVAC and Watsco's maybe like 5 billion of that. Um, but they're twice as large as the second largest competitor. And I think like the key to this industry here is like local presence matters because, um, you know, like a customer who's in the Sun Belt and a hundred degree day, they can't wait for you know days before the air conditioning get gets fixed and so like most of watsco's equipment is delivered within 10 miles of one of their 600 stores right and so and earlier i said you know they were two times the share of the second largest but if you actually look at things from uh, you know local market perspective which is far more relevant um in states where they have branches they're more like three to four times bigger and so um there's the local presence and then um there's like a cultural aspect to this. Watsco, they're, they're buying up these small mom and pop distributors at like five to seven times EBIT. And they kind of have the same mentality as like Constellation or Heiko, where it's like a very decentralized entity. So they only have like 25 people in HQ, right? And they've never hired an investment banker to intermediate these deals. And so, you know, like the, the companies that they buy, they're often like family businesses that have just been passed down over generations. And so uh, Watsco will maintain ties with these companies for a really long time they'll foster goodwill and then when it comes time for those companies to sell these small distributors see watsco so as kind of a safe port where the business will be preserved i guess that's a big part of the reason why like private equity they've tried to crack into the space and they've just they've just sort of uh never been never been successful hmm. yeah i mean i think um kind of on a related point i mean so uh ferguson's just got a new ceo who um I guess he had been with the company for 10 years or 12 years and they had sold their, their family business, which was, mm -hmm. it was called Midwest pipe and supply, um, yeah. which does, um, 
kind of it's in their waterworks division it's like the um kind of civil um side of the business and yeah and so he he basically they sold their family business he worked for the company became coo and now he's ceo so kind of see a similar thing where it's you know these mom and pop businesses that get rolled up into this larger entity um yeah yeah i thought i thought the other interesting um part and maybe this is true of ferguson as well is that you know like oftentimes when you when you think about distribution businesses um, there are like barriers to scale in those businesses, but not necessarily barriers to entry. But like in Watsco's case, there's also um, barriers to entry because at least in the U.S., there are like seven companies that manufacture like 90% of um, like HVAC systems. And so the largest is um, Carrier, which used to be part of uh, United Technologies. So they have 25% share. And those guys have basically granted exclusive distribution rights to certain local distributors. So like you can't just like break into into these markets, and so, you know, Watsco they've primarily relied on um, on roll ups and acquisitions to get bigger. They have they like because you so, just can't do, you can't do it otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Because like Watsco wouldn't be able to expand organically in the Northwest, for example, or the Pacific Northwest, because they don't have the distribution agreements out there, and so they they wouldn't be able to compete effectively. If they did want to get out there, they'd have to do it through acquisition. But likewise, it'd be hard for anyone else to break into their territory in the Sun Belt. Yeah. So, so yeah, a large part of this is just like a capital allocation story. I think it's just, and so, so I guess this is sort of interesting. It's like the biggest part of their long of management's long-term comp is in um, restricted stock that doesn't cliff vest for like 25 or 30 years. Wow. So it's like, basically it doesn't, doesn't vest till like these officers reach retirement. And so it's like kind of this old school, uh, long-term focus, emphasis on local relationships. I think I read, yeah, like in, in the Watsco 10K, don't they say that like, it doesn't vest until they retire actually? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the exact rule is, if it's like, if it's 25, 30 years or if it's like actually when they retire. But yeah, I mean, it's just a super- It's insane. Um, long time. I was, um, I was thinking about, I mean, so that barrier to entry that you're talking about with like the exclusive distribution rights, I mean, I think- you know, that obviously makes, makes Watsko a very durable business. Um, yeah. And that's why, like, I don't think Ferguson's is necessarily like that because, I mean, there's no, there's no situation, there's no similar arrangements. I mean, it's, it, that's why I kind of think about it more as like a Home Depot, just like specializing in, in piping and, mm -hmm. um, and plumbing, just because, I mean, there's so many brands out there and like, yes, they'll have exclusive, exclusive brands, but I don't think it's the, the same type of, there's many more suppliers, right. Than just like seven concentrated manufacturers. Um, right. But, right. But I think like the barriers to this is like, you know, one, there's like, just like a logistic side, like these guys have like over a million different products that they can sell. They've got, so that's like, you know, so you have to have like sourcing capabilities and then you also have to have like physical infrastructure here. So, you know, they've got, I don't know, like 10 different DCs, you know, all those, you know, the 15, 1500 branches, 300 showrooms. So, and then also like, you need to have like a knowledgeable invest associates. So people mm -hmm. who can help their, their customers pick out the right product. And so I think all of that just like, kind of comes down to like good customer service. And so, um, I think they said something like 50% of their business comes from contractors who are in the, who are in the bidding stage. Like they haven't actually secured the business yet. Mm -hmm. And so, um, having different services that can help their customers win business um, is critical. So there's also like a big tech angle to this as well, which is something that like Home Depot is investing a ton of money. There's, they're investing like, I don't know, $2 billion over the next couple of years to improve their physical infrastructure and, um, 
retail presence and also like technology. And yeah. I think that's something that Ferguson does also focus on is like, you know, expanding their online capabilities, you know, doing different, doing different, different distribution options, like pickup and store delivery. They do, all, they also do things like prefabrication of, of units and stuff. And so just finding different ways to, to help, you know, delight your customer base. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like the small things that you don't think of, but it's just like kind of block it, um, blocking and tackling essentially. Yeah. And I think it also sort of, the more there's sort of like a customer service aspect to it, um, and the more your your sales rely on contractors as opposed to end customers, the more that kind of like mollifies the, the Amazon risk, right? Right. Because I think like, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, everyone was sort of in a tizzy about how Amazon was going to, um, you know, extend its logistics into the industrial space and steal share from, I don't know, like the auto auto parts guys and um yeah i don't think these guys they, they go to home depot they go to they go to ferguson's like three or four times a week you know and like yeah like you said i think you said for watsco they deliver it within 20 miles i mean ferguson said like sorry you said watsco 10 miles ferguson's 20 mm -hmm. miles i mean you need, to have, you need to have this local presence you need to have the relationships with with the contractors and you need to have like knowledgeable associates yeah exactly um and then with with HVAC systems, I mean, you're, you're talking about like 300 pound piece of equipment that needs to be delivered <laughs> within like a few hours, you know. So yeah, I mean, I think I think some of that mitigates the Amazon risk. I think it's kind of weird that Ferguson's is in HVAC, so it's like, yeah, what do you think is going on with that? I don't know. I mean, it's it kinda, so small for them. Yeah, it's nine percent of their revenue. It kind of stands out, but they're also like the number three player in the United States. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. Do yeah, they say what they're going to do with that business? Is it, do they think it's like, um, like a core, is that a core business for them or? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, um, I haven't, I haven't seen them talk about it on any of their calls. Uh -huh. Um, but I mean, I do like, I think most of the acquisitions that they're doing are more like home related. So this is, um, sorry, not home related, but like more just like repair remodel, like interior stuff rather than like and plumbing related rather than, you know, HVAC, which is kind of like a one off big time, like one purchase. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know, it just doesn't seem to fit within like the rest of their product mix. So who knows, but yeah, so, so yeah, it's kind of interesting, but like, I mean, massive multiple, um, discrepancy, which is, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's a pretty high quality business for, for that type of discrepancy. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is like, cause I mean, I mean the returns like are good. The margins are good. On. It's, it's growing yeah. faster. Gro growth story. I mean, good solid growth. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it's just because they're because of the listing, like not, not a lot of people know about it. And so if you want to buy it, mm -hmm. you can either buy it on, um, the, the London stock exchange, or you can uh, buy an ADR, which doesn't really, if you want to have like a five ticker symbol in your portfolio. So, well, I try to avoid, uh, <laughs> <laughs> tickers with, with more than four, four letters. What if there's a Q at the just end? The, as a that general okay? rule. <laughs> only that's that's the one exception <laughs> i will make oh the other interesting thing so you know i talked about revamping the board and it seems like they got some pretty heavy hitters on here so mm -hmm. um yeah so the ceo just retired and and he's replaced by the his, his name is kevin murphy he was the one who sold his family business to fergie uh-huh so the new chairman is this guy uh jeff drabble who had been the ceo of ashted for 12 years. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
And so he, yeah, that's I mean, a good, that's a really solid company, super solid company. They, they, yeah. they, they crushed it. Um, and, um, they also got this director, her name is Kathy Halligan, who was previously the CMO of walmart.com. And mm -hmm. so I think that's pretty interesting because you can, um, you know, she would obviously know a ton about, you know, digital transformation and, um, nice. So, yeah, that, it does sound really interesting though. Like I'm probably going to look at this. Yeah. Um, should I stop this recording here? Yeah, I think we, we got, we got, we're good. That was good. I like that. Yeah. I think that went pretty smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. Um,